This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. The following is a presentation of A's Cast, your free 24-7 nonstop destination for A's baseball. Go to athletics.com slash A's Cast to download the app. Restrictions apply. From baseball's top personalities. The great Chris Russo joins us once again. To the game's top players. Joining us is the all-star. Matt Chapman with us. You never know what stories you're going to hear. If you make your way down here, I, I might be able to make some time and go out there and see the great Chris Townsend. This is A's Unfiltered with Chris Townsend. Welcome to another edition of A's Unfiltered with Chris Townsend. We're talking about... The home run race from 1998. So we're going to hear from Carney Lansford, Walt Jockety, A.J. Snock, and our buddy Paul Hembikides. But we're going to start with Carney Lansford. Of course, A's great, a batting champion, an all-star, a World Series champion in 1989. But in 1998, Carney Lansford was the bench coach and co-hitting coach with Dave Parker on Tony La Russa's staff. He lived it. He worked with Mark every single day. It's a great story. Here is Carney Lansford talking about his buddy, Mark McGuire. Well, our next guest here on A's Cast Live was one of the premier hitters of his time. He was an AL batting champion, a World Series champion, an all-star, and also a coach on the St. Louis Cardinals, the bench coach in 1998. Carney Lansford is with us. Carney, it's great to have you back on the program. And it's nice to be back on the program. Thanks for having me. You know, that we're, we're going to get into uh, 1989 coming up next week. We'll ask you about that. But it was so funny watching Long Gone Summer, the 30 for 30 on Mark McGuire and Sammy Sosa. It was great to see your guys' coaching staff. It was it was all XAs on that staff. Yeah, it really was. And uh, it was a lot of fun. Let me tell you, we had a blast that year. You know, I just just watching the joy. We just had the uh, director on and I said, you know, the joy that was in everybody's faces, everywhere you guys went, everywhere Sammy Sosa and the Cubs went. It was great just to see what baseball fans were like back then and made you made you remember what a what what an amazing time in our game that year was. It really was. And, uh, you know, I mean, it was so crazy. It was like the the media was just nuts that season with what Mark and Sammy were doing. But. Actually, Gary Gaetti, the second half of the season, nicknamed Mark Mark McBeetle <laughs> because there were so many people following him. It, it, it was, I mean, it was like the start of my career. So remembering back when you guys came to San Francisco, and if you remember, they did the red velvet ropes around the batting cage to keep people away. I had never seen that before. And the fact that ESPN started breaking in just to watch Mark take batting practice was crazy yeah it was you know that year too uh you know normally at home you don't open the gates for the fans to come watch batting practice but tony Larusa made the decision at the beginning of the season to open up the uh the gates early and let our fans watch mark hit in bp so that was something that was changed also as far as the, that year went 
at what point were you sitting there on the bench going, I think he's got a real shot at this? Well, actually, you know, Dave Parker and I were the co-hitting coaches and co-bench coaches. So, you know, I was actually Mark's personal soft toss guy in the cage the entire year. So I probably saw him more than anybody else and got to see how he his reaction was during this whole thing. So um, it was just crazy, you know. I mean, um, you know, it, at one point or a couple points, it kind of got to him. And you could tell it was wearing him out mentally and physically. He just looked exhausted where, you know, early on, even in spring training, Dave Parker and I said, hey, this guy got a chance to break this record if he stays healthy. And, you know, he's got off to such a great start. Just a lot of fun to watch. I, I watched that 30 for 30 thing last night, too. And I watching it, to be honest with you, I still got goosebumps. I bet. I mean, I think about, I mean, you guys won a World Series together. You know, I mean, you think about the friendship that you have with Mark McGuire. You're working with him every single day. And to help to, to help him do this, man, what a ride. It really was. You know, let, let me tell you a quick story that I like, enjoy telling about that season. You know, back, uh, towards the end of the season, we were in Houston playing the Astros at the Astrodome. And Sammy Sosa, I think it just the day before or that day or something, hit two home runs to tie him like at 65. So we're walking to the batting cage, and you could see he was a little bit down. You know, his head was hanging a little bit, and he just kind of says to me, man, what do I got to do to win this thing? I stopped, and I said, Mark, let me ask you something. Who the heck is going to accuse you of being, you know, a choke artist if you only hit 65 or 66 home runs? Nobody's going to say, I mean, the guy's having a phenomenal season, too. You can do what you can do, and that's it. And uh, he's like, you know what? You're right. So um, I think that kind of helped a little bit, too. You know, I, I know that, you know, when we go over to Sloan Park in Arizona for spring training, the Cubs, they've got all these shirts ripping St. Louis. I mean, it's pretty funny, but there is that true rivalry between St. Louis and Chicago. The two fan bases hate each other, but in 1998, I, to, to watch Wrigley Field give Mark McGuire a standing ovation or to watch St. Louis give Sammy Sosa. And to watch, you know, when, when, when McGuire hits one of the home runs, Mark Grace is high-fiving him. And to watch the Gary Gaetti's hugging him. To what, what was that like where you got two franchises that hate each other and now it's a love fest? Well, you know, I just think that, that everybody was caught up in it so much that the, the only thing, you know, they saw the record being broke and guys on pace to break this record, not one, but two guys. And, you know, and even though you're rivals, I mean, as a, as a player, you just see this is a, a, a record that nobody ever thought was going to be broken. And to watch these two guys chase that record and then actually pass it, you know, I think that um, that broke down a lot of that during those games, especially towards the end of the season. And then, the, you know, Tony talks about how exhausted Big Mac was, didn't even want to play in the last game, where he ends up hitting two home runs to get to 70. Just how mentally and physically exhausted was Mark at the end of this? Uh, he was he was totally, in fact, you know, he, he asked not to play. I didn't know that. But I just know before the game, every game, I would he would have to get work on his back, so he would be one of the last guys to the cage. So I would wait for him, take him to the cage, get him ready for the game. And then the last day came and I said, Hey, are you ready to go to the cage? He goes, no, I'm not, I'm not going to go to the cage today. I'm just going to play the game. So I was like, okay, all right. 
well, you've got 68 home runs. What am I going to say? <laughs> so, anyway, he proceeds to go out there and hit two more home runs, and then Tony finally took him out of the game. But it's just it's just amazing thing to watch. You know, I one time we were in the cage, Chris, and I, and I was telling him, you know, he, he was going through a tough time. And this might also been in, in Houston that same time when I, you know, I told them about choking, you know, there's no way you're going to, you're choking here. Nobody's going to accuse you of that. But we were in the cage and I was actually soft tossing to him. And he asked me a question. And I said, you know, Mark, soft tossing and watching you work every day, the entire season, you've been in a zone that only special athletes can get in. I mean, you just been locked in kind of like uh, Michael Jordan or Tiger Woods or somebody like that. You know, you see him locked in that zone. You just see it in their eyes. And he just looked at me and goes, well, I'm going to have to get back in that zone. And then he just kind of took off from there. So uh, just really crazy stuff, but fun to watch. Yeah, it was, a, it, it was a, it was a great two hours. And, and when you say Carney with everything that's going on, didn't we need something uplifting? Well, absolutely. After the 94 strike, I think, you know, we lost a lot of fans and, you know, there's a lot of bad that came out of, you know, what happened in 98, but that bottom line is they brought the fans back to the game and, and uh, baseball drastically needed that at that point. And we weren't a very good team that year in, in 98, but we had packed houses everywhere we went and always at home. You know, we're celebrating a lot of A's history. And I know I've talked to you in the past about growing up here in the Bay Area and watching the 70s teams. Well, starting this weekend, we're going to start honoring the 1989 team, which is truly one of the great teams in the history of baseball. And, you know, I'm in high school and I'm, I'm thinking about 1989. Y you guys were rock stars. I mean, it was it was, you know. Canseco's date, Madonna, you got Ricky Henderson. I mean, what was that like being on that team? It was crazy, Chris, because, you know, we were really good. And I say that because only because Tony LaRusso has told me and a number of people a number of times that of all the, the teams that he managed, that 89 team was easily the best team that he ever managed. So um, we were really good. We knew we were good. Uh, we we finished off getting all the pieces when we got uh, Bobby Welch and Rick Honeycutt and, and Dave Parker was part of that. And, you know, so we knew that we didn't have any weaknesses. We had a great bench. So when Tony needed to rest guys, um, we knew that we weren't dropping off anything really. And, uh, you know, when we go on the road, we actually have they'd see as many green uh, outfits and hats and stuff in the stands on the opposing stadiums and you would see the home guys. So, yeah, it was a lot of fun, and we were good, and we knew it. What was it like hitting behind Ricky Henderson? Um, sometimes it was a nightmare <laughs> because <laughs> because he's on base so often, and you know you got to take pitches for him to be able to steal bases. And then, you know, I don't know how I hit as well as I did in '89. You know, hitting second behind him all year long, but. You know, I was able to take pitches, let him steal bases, sometimes give up at bats a number of times to move him from second to third with nobody out and, uh, you know, still put up my number. So uh, it was, it, I mean, I lockered right next to Ricky for a number of years. So, you know, he's just a great guy and a great player. So um, watching him day in and day out, I think he's the best that ever played. Well, and I think about you, you talk about all the ALCSs you played in, the three World Series, you have great postseason numbers. What was the postseason like for Carney Lansford? Um, 
Well, actually, the first one uh, with the A's in '88 was was good in the in the playoffs and terrible in the World Series. I, I think the fact that we swept the Red Sox in the, the league championship series uh, and the Dodgers went to the Mets and played a you know five game series, we had a lot of days off and we didn't really know how to stay prepared. Uh, we should have played some inner squad games against our pitchers. I think all we did was take batting practice and stuff like that. So a lot of timing was thrown off, uh, missing that many days. But we learned from that in 89 and during the earthquake, we flew back to Phoenix and played inter squad games in, in front of a packed crowd every day. So when we came back that for, you know, the third game, we were in mid season form, we were ready to go. So uh, we learned. So, that was a good postseason for me, though. As a Bay Area kid, what was it like? You're playing in a World Series. It's the A's versus the Giants. Yeah, you know, growing up for me, you know, my all-time idol is Willie Mays. So, you know, I grew up there in Santa Clara. And so I went to a number of A's games and Giants games at old Candlestick Park there. So uh, to be able to be out there and play in a World Series where I sat in the stands and watched so many games and Watched all, a lot of my idols, both on the A's and the Giants play, was just really kind of surreal. So it was just a great feeling. And then it was a great feeling to win a World Series because that's your dream as a kid. You start playing Little League ball and you dream about World Series like that. So that was awesome. I remember before the start of the series, it was like, there's no way the Giants are beating the A's. I mean, your team was superior. I mean, you guys had to feel that way too, right? Yeah, you know, we, that year in 89, Chris, we played, Tony purposely scheduled a number of games in spring training against the Giants. They did not beat us one time in spring training, not once. And yet when we got to, to Oakland, Dusty Baker, who I played with at the A's for a year or two, um, was the first base coach, I think, for the Giants. And we, I walked up and he goes, he's trying to psych me out. He goes, my nickname was Karnak. So he goes, Karnak, you guys know there's no chance you can beat us, right? I said, Dusty you guys haven't beat us yet this year, so don't even go there. <laughs> Crazy. And you had to go through the Toronto Blue Jays, where now the Toronto Blue Jays are starting. This is They're about to go on a run where they're in the playoffs. You'd take them out a couple times, but then they'd end up winning two straight World Series. Yeah, and I think that's after they got Roberto Alomar and then Paul Molitor went over there as a DH and still had a lot left in him, so – um, they got two great players when they got those guys, and that really put them over the top. Of course, you, you've been a long-time hitting coach, and just the new approach, the way hitters with launch angles and everybody's trying to lift the ball, everybody's trying to hit the ball out of the ballpark. How do you like the new approach to hitting that, that a lot of people are teaching? I can't stand it, to be honest with you. I, don't, I know there's a lot of former players. I've read a lot of guys. Lou Pinella doesn't watch games anymore because – Guys don't play small ball. They, they don't know how to hit and run. I'm talking about 90% of the guys. Not you know, There's 10% of the really good players out there that can do that stuff. But you know, just trying to go deep every time just doesn't make sense to me. I mean, there's like no pride. How many guys strike out 150 times a year now? I couldn't look at myself in the mirror after a season if I struck out 150 times. I just couldn't do it. I, and, and your career, I mean, I can't even imagine you striking out like twice in one game. Well, that happened a few times, but, <laughs> but, you know, later on in my career, I might've averaged one, one strikeout every 10 at bats. So if I had 600 at bats, I might have 60 strikeouts for the season. You know I mean? It was, 
you know, early in my career, before I worked with Walt Riniak in Boston, uh, I struck out a lot. But I was a young kid, and I never, nobody really ever worked with me and taught me how to use the entire field until I got to Boston. So, you know, uh, like my second time, my second year in the big leagues with the Angels, I struck out like 119 times, but I scored 120 runs or something like that. They hit 287 with 19 home runs. But, you know, once I got to Boston, I learned how to put the ball in play and how to use the whole field. And it just made me a much more confident hitter at the plate. So, yeah, it would be tough. It's tough for me to watch games now because there's so many guys just trying to launch everything. Nobody knows how to use the entire field. So, although this spring training, I was actually, Tony invited me to come to the Angels uh, spring training practice workout or whatever. And I saw Mike Trout taking BP and he was hitting purposely hitting balls to right field and driving the ball that way. And he came out of the, the batter's box and I said, Hey, what's up with this man? Using the whole field. He just kind of laughed. He goes, yeah, that's the only way I can put up the numbers I put up. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I think he's going to be pretty good, Carney. I think he's going to be okay. Yeah. I think he's already there. You know, this guy named Albert Pujols, who I thought was was probably one of the all-time best, this guy might end up being better. Carney, we always appreciate the time. It's always great to bring you back in front of the A's fans and back to the Bay Area where you grew up. Uh, thank you so much for reminiscing about 1998 and 1989. Be safe, be well, and we'll talk to you soon. Thanks, Chris. Thanks for having me, and you do the same. And we bring you another A's great, as Walt Jockety was the scouting director years ago for the Oakland Athletics, but in 1998, he was the GM. He's the guy who traded for Mark McGuire with Sandy Alderson. And now Walt Jockety is an advisor for the Cincinnati Reds. But back then, he was the guy calling the shots for the Redbirds. Here is Walt Jockety. Walt, thank you for coming on, and welcome back to the program. The A's fans always love hearing from you. Well, I appreciate that, Chris. It's always fun to... uh reach out to the people back there. We spent a lot of great years back there. Probably my children were born in the Bay Area. So it's a lot of, I guess we've got a lot of friends. We we have a lot of uh, great memories from there. Yeah, I remember you know, the last time you came to town with the Cincinnati Reds, and, and we talked about just, you know, as you mentioned, your children were born here. I, I know what franchise truly means to you. Yeah, you're right. It's, uh, uh, you know, just, the, the memories and, and the people that I met there, the, in fact, a couple of them are still with the uh, A's. And uh, I think uh, one is Steve Houston. I think he, he may have come over with uh, Connie Mack. I'm not sure, but he's, he's been <laughs> in a long time. <laughs> and Mickey Morbido is a very dear friend of mine. So, in fact, Mickey and I started at the same time in 1980. I think I started about a week before he did. So we had a lot of close relationships with uh, people still back there. You know, one thing that we've all been doing in baseball as, you know, we've we've had a lot of time is we're reminiscing about the good old days. And there's two things that I want to talk to you about. One is going to be the 1989 Oakland Athletics who won the World Series. But first, what we're going to have here on Sunday is we're going to go back and reminisce about the home run rate between Mark McGuire and Sammy Sosa. And that time was so amazing. It really helped bring baseball back. And to think that these two guys were going after the all-time home run record. And you're talking about two players in the same division. Yeah, it was it was incredible. It was a it was just a a, a fun electric time in the game. Uh, you know, it was, it was, it was, we're still kind of recovering from that uh, work stoppage. 
in uh, 94 and going into 95 and, and um, uh, you know, fans were still a little uh, apprehensive about coming out the ballpark, but once this home run race started, and I think it, you know, with the uh, Cardinal franchise in St. Louis, it, it really helped put them uh, back in business because they, they, you know, they, our attendance was down and so forth, but then once uh, Big Mac came to town, uh, our tenants started to grow and it got to 3 million. And I think it's stayed consistently around 3 million ever since. And, and um, he had a big, big part to do with that, he and Sammy, but also um, just revitalizing the game of baseball, getting people interested in the game of baseball again. It was, it was huge for the industry. And, and, and the excitement that I don't think we've ever seen anything like it before or since to where ESPN is breaking away for at bats. Like we, we just, we had, we were so obsessed with this, uh, but, but this is, this is coming from being in the Bay area. What was it like right. doing it, doing it every single day? It was, uh, it was actually, it was magical. It was, it was so much fun. And, and, you know, we ended up having to, uh, uh, the, the, the show that Mark put on during BP was, was so much, so amazing that, we finally decided to open our gates early to let fans in. You normally, you know, you might have a hundred people or so at, at, during BP. Well, once we opened the gates early and brought people in, let them come in uh, with their tickets. We had thousands. So we come out and watch, just watch batting practice because it was a show in itself. And it was, you know, the whole experience was, was a lot of fun. It was, I know it was tough on Mark and it was tough on some. It was just, uh, you know, pulling for him and hoping that he would uh, uh, reach that goal. But, once he did, it was uh, really uh, an amazing time. You know, it's, it was almost like a pennant race for us. It was like, uh, you know, there was so much excitement and every at-bat that he took uh, was um, was amazing. But, you know, you talk about like ESPN pulling away for for uh, uh, shots of his at-bats. Fans would not leave their seats when they knew Mark was coming. If he was coming off the next thing, they would not leave their seats to go to the restroom or the concession stand. They'd wait until after he hit before they'd, they'd leave. I remember at Candlestick Park, I'd never seen this before, where they, with the, with the red rope, they walled off the, the, the batting cage because it got to mm-hmm. be such a big deal. Batting practice became king, and everybody wanted a piece of Mark. And uh, I can't imagine what that was like for him because obviously he wasn't, a, he wasn't a media darling. No, no, he was, you know, you know Mark at all. He he was a you know really a shy, humble guy. Didn't like a lot of attention. He just wanted to do his his job, and uh, it you know it it got to him after a while because it was it was just so much pressure, so much media. I mean, our clubhouse, like I said, it was it was like a postseason. There would be so so many uh, media in, in the clubhouse every day, especially the last uh, you know month or so, and it it, uh, it really took its toll on him. I think. Once he, he got to 62, it was, uh, uh, you know, I think you could see a, a big relief uh, uh, form and, and, and finishing out the season uh, hitting 70. But it was, it, was, uh, it was a tough time for him, but he, he handled it well. He, he handled it like a pro. He, he signed a lot of audio. And he, that's the one thing. He had to go back in the back room of the clubhouse and sign. People wanted stuff signed all the time, and he would – go back and just uh, have some quiet time back there and sign autographs with the clubhouse guys and, and uh, take care of business there and get some quiet time. 
So we had Mark on when he went into the A's Hall of Fame. And, you, you know, when you think the most home runs ever hit by anybody with the Oakland A's, Mark McGuire. And mm -hmm. I asked him about you saved baseball. You and Sammy Sosa, I mean, obviously there was Cal Ripken Jr. breaking Lou Gehrig's consecutive games played. That helped. Right. It was really the home run race that brought it back. And Mark said to this day, people still come up and thank him for saving baseball. Yeah, that, that doesn't surprise me because, you know, uh, it was something that, uh, you know, it was, it was a tough time in and, 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 and the game. And, and people got excited and it just carried throughout the country and not just in St. Louis and Chicago, but in, throughout the country. And it was it was a uh, they really did save the industry. They saved the game. And, and uh um, you know, it's been going strong ever since. But uh, it, it doesn't surprise me that people remember him and, and uh, thank him for that. So we're going to get this documentary on Sunday night. I can't wait because it, it's far different from, I think, The Last Dance with Michael Jordan. I mean, the way ESPN covered the Bulls, uh, there wasn't a lot that we didn't know. I think there's right. going to be a lot of stuff that we don't know about this home run race. What are you most looking forward to watching this on Sunday night? Well, I, I'm anxious to see the comments from all the other people. When I, I filmed something about a year ago with the producer in, out here in Arizona, and he, uh, he told me at that point he had uh, been working on it for about a year, and he'd had, I don't know, 37 or 38 people he'd interviewed. He still had several more. So it'd be interesting to see how they put it all together. I, I think it's a two-hour uh, show, and, and I'm just anxious to see what, how they handle it, and, and uh, hopefully – it's all in a positive manner. I, I just think it's, uh, you know, I, I still uh, think about it from time to time. And I got to uh, obviously have a few pictures around my my uh, house and stuff of, of Mark and, and uh, some of the highlights. And, and there was a dinner that we had uh, that after he broke the record it was uh, my wife and I and Tony La Russa and, and uh, Mark and his family. It was just a special time that uh, we, we, he was gracious enough to invite us to the dinner. And, and it was just a time for him to relax and, and uh, enjoy it. And I don't know if they'll capture something like that, but that was, you know, once, once he broke the record, it was, uh, it was uh, you know, really much easier for him, I think. It was just the, the daily pressure and, and uh, hounding by the media and fans, too, wanting autographs. It was pretty tough. Yeah, I think about your success in Oakland and St. Louis, and Tony. I mean, you think of Tony Larusa in Oakland and St. Louis, Mark McGuire in Oakland and St. Louis. You brought a little mm -hmm. bit of that age to St. Louis. Absolutely, that's where, that's where I cut my teeth. That's where I learned the game and and uh, learned the industry. And, and um, you know, we had some great uh, teams there over the years. We had some great draft picks. We had the three rookies of the year. Uh, with uh, McGuire and, and Canseco and, and Weiss, so we had good we had good scouts, we had good development, and then it's continued. I mean, uh, Billy and David did a good job of carrying that uh, tradition on with uh, you know good young players, and uh, you know it's it's uh, you know Sandy helped me a lot, and I learned a lot from Sandy over the years. In fact, uh, that was a, uh, a lesson in itself, just trying to make the deal with Sandy when we acquired McGuire. So. That was the first time I dealt with Sandy from the other side, and it was uh, it was fun. It was a, a fun time trying to get that deal done. 
you know, we, we honored the 70s team, 72, 73, 74, and hopefully we're going to get baseball back soon. But now we're going to honor 1989. We're going to play the ALCS games here on A's cast, and we're going to play the World Series. You know, I was in high school at the time, and these guys to me were like rock stars. I mean, you got Jose Canseco, you got Mark McGuire, you got Ricky Henderson, you got Dave Stewart, Dennis Eckersley. I mean, when you look back at 1989, I, I think people truly don't give this team their due. They're truly one of the great baseball teams of all time. I, I totally agree with you, Chris. I mean, it was uh, – we had pitching, we had defense, we had offense, we had power, good hitters. Uh, it was just a well-rounded team. And, um, you know, unfortunately it was cut uh, – it was interrupted with the earthquake, but it still uh, gave us an opportunity to – celebrate uh, uh, the achievement because we, we missed in 88 and we missed in 90, but 89 was a special year with a great team. And Tony did all the, made all the right moves. He had, a, you know, Tony's staff was one of the best in the game at the time. And it was a, it was a remarkable time, I think, in A's history. And we look back on, you know, the, in the mid seventies, when they went, went to the world series, won all the series then. And, and then uh, uh, again, the late eighties and early nineties, it was uh, um, a, a great time. You know, when I think about that team, too, it, it's it, it's like they were a traveling rock band, right? Because they, they, were, they were superstars at the time. It's like you just can't walk through the front door of the hotel. I mean, these guys, these guys were rock stars. Yeah, no question about it. I mean, they and they, they were big dudes, too. I mean, there's some big guys there that uh, um, and, and they stand out. And you can tell they're athletes and they, most people knew who they were, but it was. It was fun because it was a great group of guys, too. Everybody got along, and uh, um, it was just a, a fun clubhouse, a fun team to be around, and, and uh, I, I was just happy to be a part of it. I, and, again, it's uh, lessons I learned there that, you know, how you how you put a, a roster together, how you put a team together to help me uh, further in my career. Let's end on this. A shortened season is going to be fascinating, and, and one of the chic picks – are the Cincinnati Reds to be very competitive? What do you think this game is going to look like from a standpoint of it's no longer a marathon, it truly is a sprint? Well, you're right, and it's, it's going to be incredibly different because that's, that was one of the things that Tony would always talk about the season. It's a marathon, it's, and it's not a sprint, and now it's just the opposite. It's going to be, you know, we've got a very talented team in Cincinnati. Uh, we, we spent some money and added a lot of, uh, uh, parts that we needed. We got strong pitching, starting pitching, and good bullpen, and now we've added some offense. So it's going to be very important to get off to a good start. I think for any team that uh, that hopes to get into the postseason, it's a, it's imperative to get off to a good start. And and you you can't if you start out 0 and 5 or 0 and 6, even you know uh, 1 and 10 or something, it's going to really set you back because you're not going to have a lot of time to make it up. We're during the uh, normal season, you would. So you, it's going to be important to uh, start out winning and, and continue to carry that through the how, how many ever games we had to play, whether it's 50, 60, 70, or 80. Um, we've got to uh, make sure you, you're ready every day. I just want to get you and your buddy Steve Vucinich out of the hot there down in Arizona and get you out of there. Yeah, I, I appreciate that because it is uh, – it is, cooking up here today so it's going to be 108 today 110 tomorrow so we could use a little uh, fresh cool air 
Walt, always great catching up with you. Be safe and uh, can't wait for the season to start and talk to you. Sounds good. Thanks, Chris. I appreciate it. Have a great year. Now, this was a really good get by Cody. A.J. Snock is the director of the film of Long Gone Summer. And we got to learn watching it. You know, he was on in the very beginning about, you know, growing up outside St. Louis and what a big fan he was of the St. Louis Cardinals. I thought they did a great job with this. Here is the director of Long Gone Summer, A.J. Snock. A.J., thank you so much for taking the time. Congratulations on your 30 for 30 it came at a perfect time where we as sports fans, we need something uplifting. And this was very uplifting. And it brought brought back such great memories and, and the joy we all had in 1998, watching Big Mac and Sammy Sosa go on that home run binge. It was phenomenal. Oh, thanks so much. Well, I was really glad to... Uh get to spend some some good time. I got in like at the very end of our editing process. I got in some of that great A's uh, era footage of McGuire, um, both, you know, when the A's were doing so well and going to the uh, uh, the World Series every year, but also just during his down years uh, in the earlier 90s. Um, so it was fun to be able to shine a bit of a light on that on that A's team and uh, Mark's role in it. We recently had him on when he went into the A's Hall of Fame and I asked him about how people still react to him and people to this day still come to him and thank him, thank him for reviving baseball. Cause that's really what these two guys, and we can throw in King Griffey jr. Too. Uh, it's what these guys did for the game. The game needed something like this. Yeah. I was talking when people, you know, ask, well, did it save baseball in, in 98? Um, you know, and, and there are different views on both attendance figures and, you know, viewership during that time period. Uh, to me, it was just about the feeling that people had about the game. And especially as it came down to that series in Bush Stadium in, in early September of 1998, you saw these two guys, uh, McGuire and Sosa, very different backgrounds, uh, different teams within a rivalry, different races, different styles of play. Um, different uh, ways in which they uh, they appeared, uh, you know, happy or, or kind of stoic. Um, and but they both seem to really love the game, love each other, um, recognize the history that they were making and, and, re and recognizing the history of baseball. And I think in that moment, um, baseball after the strike of you know 94 95 baseball finally again started to have this feeling of it was the national pastime it was a representative of the best of america um and that to me that feeling i think lasted for for several years afterwards um that just people really felt like baseball was back yeah we learned a little bit about you how you grew up outside of st louis and you're a big cardinal fan and we got two great midwest teams i mean it would have been weird if this was like king griffey jr doing it in the pacific northwest and somebody else doing it like a new york met i mean the fact that you had these two arch i mean true rivals these two franchises hate each other next thing you know they're all hugging each other and the you know big mac hits the home run and mark grace is high-fiving them i mean it was like the players got so into it. 
Yeah, no, I mean, I I always say that had it had it been as the storyline seemed to be at the beginning of the season that this was going to come down to to Mark and uh, Junior, you know, the Mariners aren't going to come to Bush Stadium in in October in September. We're not we're just not going to have a lot of those moments where they're together and they're they're showing you like how much fun that they're having. Um, so yeah, I think it was it was specific that it had it was about these two teams and within that rivalry, it was in the Midwest, um, and you know, it was uh, you know. Mark, who after kind of going through the season, you know, just like head down, finally starting to enjoy what was happening around him as he's passing 50, you know, like gets to 50 before September and starts to feel like, okay, maybe this is possible. Uh, And Sosa, who's, you know, just, uh, you know, man, he's happy to be there. He's just thrilled. Uh, could, couldn't could not be like uh, more overjoyed that he's getting like the attention that he's getting. Yeah, you you started to see, and Mark talked about it, you know, the pressure was all on him. You know, Sammy's Sammy's just riding his coattails and having a ball to where you could really see there was pressure on Mark McGuire, and I had to be the guy that ended with the most home runs. Yeah, I mean, everyone we talked to, uh, Sammy and, and other members of the Cubs organization or reporters who covered it at the time, all said that Sammy just didn't seem to feel any amount of pressure to hit the home runs. You know, it was just kind of like, if it happened, it was going to be great. Um, and he was really connecting in a way, you know, he had been such a free swinger in previous years. The fact that he was being more patient at the plate, he was looking for his pitch. Um, you know, I think that was just contributing to him, like having that phenomenal June. And then, I mean, you look at the year, if you, if you take out the first two months of the year, Sosa wins the the home run derby, um, you know, but it was really uh, him, him being just able to enjoy it. I think both probably at first Mark looked at that and was like, why is this guy able to just like enjoy himself? Um, but then I think at the end it was, you know, it was definitely, they're both very competitive and certainly for Mark, um, being pushed by Sammy, um, was the reason why he eventually gets to 70. You know, it's been a long time and Mark obviously got back in the game, had to do the interview with Bob Costas, Tony LaRusso and him are so tight. Tony got him back in the game. Uh, we still know that the Cubs and Sammy have never come back together. It, it, it really did strike me how both of them are still so uncomfortable talking about PEDs. Yeah, I mean, we talked in advance before the cameras that we were going to have to cover everything. I mean, with Mark, I do feel he's, you know, he's been uh, pretty clear about when he used, why he used, um, how he feels it affected or didn't affect his performance. Um, You know, with Sammy, he feels he told Congress that he, uh, you know, he didn't use He's made some statements since then that seem to allow some wiggle room, which I think is why there's still, you know, a lot of, uh, you know, controversy around Sosa. Um, but then again, you have one guy who's admitted it and there was a lot of evidence around being McGuire and, and Sosa who hasn't admitted anything. And there's very flimsy evidence uh, about him using, I think most of what people consider to be the evidence is just looking at the change in his performance from 97 to 98. So, yeah, I don't. I don't think it's either of their favorite subjects. Um, for Mark, I think it's because you know there's 
he still is going to believe that he would have uh, hit at least 62 that summer. And I think there's a lot of good reason to believe that that's true or at least possible. And, you know, for Sammy, I, he, I think he says something different in the film um, than he's ever said before, you know, just sort of acknowledging that he feels like that there were a lot of people who were, were doing this at the time, whether he was or not. Um, but that the, the focus on him has been, at least in his mind, unfair. Yeah, and I'm sure you probably learned while doing this that a lot of these guys will tell you that it actually was more of a level playing field than we actually knew of back then, that more guys were using that. You know, when Canseco or Ken Caminiti comes out and talks about whether it's 75 or 70 percent, I mean, there were a lot of guys using. Yeah, I mean, we asked people, like, what do you think the percentage was? And, you know, we'd get anywhere from people saying, you know, it was 10 percent to 50 percent to more. Um you know, I think the one of the things reasons why people don't know is it wasn't so much that people were hiding that they were doing it. It wasn't a, like a purposefully trying to be covert, but a lot of it was happening in the off season. They were doing it as they were like preparing to come into the new season. And so it's at a time when everybody's not all together in in the uh, in the clubhouse together so you know for a lot of players they're like i just don't know if if other teammates i had were, were using um if they were they were probably doing it in you know december january february because you would see guys come to to spring training back then and you would look at them and go like wow um you've been doing something to to make yourself stronger in in the off season for sure I remember at Candlestick Park when McGuire came in and they had the red velvet ropes around the batting cage to keep people away. You'd never seen that. And just watching it last night, you just remember the joy that this brought to all these fans and all these little kids. And everybody wanted a piece of Big Mac. Everybody wanted a piece of Sammy Sosa. It just, just, just pure joy were in these people's faces as they were either at the ballpark or watching it at home. And Bill Clinton's calling uh, Big Mac. I mean, I just, just to see all the joy. It was nice to see in people's faces. Yeah, and and especially you know here was something very unusual in that it was this individual contest that went over time. A lot of times, you know, the things that we get excited about in sports is like. You know, maybe we're excited about the playoffs, but we're, we're excited for who wins. You know, we're excited for the Super Bowl. We're excited for game seven of the Stanley Cup. You know, the the thing here is here you have this team sport that is for a good month and a half. I, I always say it starts with the, that series in Chicago in, in mid-August. Um, and, and then from then on, it's like every day. You know, ESPN cutting into Sports Center to show batting practice. Um, you know, checking to see, like, you know, in the paper first thing in the morning, who who hit a home run last night? Where do they stand? Um, you know, I remember going to Dodger games and then putting up on the uh, scoreboard. Uh, you know, that one of them was was coming up to bat. You know, it, it and, and not like you know they're playing elsewhere. Um, but it's like Sammy Sosa coming up for his second at bat and everyone would just kind of be watching to see like, oh, he struck out or he popped up or he got a home run. And that to me is uh, that the fact that everybody got excited about this individual contest in a team sport um, was really unusual. I don't think we've seen anything like it. So you go into this project. Obviously, we know what happened. You're a Cardinals fan. You were wrapped up into it. What's something you learned that you didn't know going into this this film? Well, there are a lot of little stories that people told that I, I wasn't familiar with. Um, one of the things that Mark said early on was that he um, 
before his seasons, he would make a list of what he wanted to achieve in a season. Um, and he would write it down and put it in his safe. And then he wouldn't look at it again until the season was over. Um, that was something I had never heard before. Um, I think a lot of the press both then and in the years following was that Mark wasn't necessarily trying to break the record. Um, so for him to say in our interviews that yes, he, before the season started, he thought this could be the year I need to hit 10 home runs a month. Um, I need to stay on a certain pace in order to do it. That that was actually, it was something he went into the year thinking about. Um, that was something that was really new for me. Um, Larusa tells a story at the end of the film about uh, McGuire saying after the, the Saturday night, the final weekend of the of the regular season, he's just hit 68, and that he's, his body's so burnt, he's so worn out that he doesn't want to play the next day. Don't write me in, McGuire says. Uh, and Larusa, you know, <laughs> says, no, you're, I'm going to write you in. Like, it doesn't matter if it's not about whether or not Sosa can catch you. It's just about it's the last game of the season. And unless you're like going <laughs> to fall down dead, you're going to play. Um, so I thought the, the, those were great things I had never heard for and a lot of other stories like that. Um, but there's also was a lot of detail to the season um, that I had forgotten. For instance, that Sosa went ahead of McGuire during the, the season at that game at Wrigley on August 19th, that he was the first one to get to 48. Um, you know, I, I think in my mind, Sosa had always been like two or three back until that last weekend when he finally uh, surpasses uh, McGuire. But it wasn't the first time he, he passed McGuire. It was the it was the second. Uh, and, you know, for those, what, 45 minutes, uh, Sosa was the all-time home record champ in Major League Baseball. Yeah, and that June that Sosa had, you forget, my God, it's the maybe the greatest month in the history of baseball. How about the guy who buys the baseball when it's all said and done, it's like over $3 million, and yeah. he thinks I have this baseball and no one's ever going to break this record, and then here comes Barry Bonds. Yeah, um, Todd McFarlane, uh, well-known comic book artist, creator of Spawn, um, you know, has been a filmmaker, uh, also uh, creates a bunch of toys uh, around uh, both stuff involving comics and and other stuff. And, and in this case, he really wanted to make uh, action figures related to sports. Um, and so part of the reason he went and spent all this money, we didn't have time, unfortunately, to get into it in the film, but spent all this money in order to be able to get major league baseball and other leagues attention like hey i'm serious um you know take a look at me and what i, I can do in terms of toys uh, and and the reality is is that he, he that's was very successful and so whatever ultimately he spent which i think is maybe over five million in total on all the balls he has um he uh, he has made back uh, in, in terms of uh, all of the toys uh, that, that he has created for sports, which he was able to get into in part because he he bought those balls. Um, but he told us the second reason he wanted to do it was he had two uh, brothers who both uh, were huge baseball fans, and he wanted to be able to say to them, I've got the baseball, I've got the baseball, you can't have it. So, um, yes, the, uh, Todd McFarlane, a great interview, um, super interesting guy, uh, and he still has all those balls somewhere in Arizona. Well, I got to tell you, it, it was fabulous. I'm going to watch it again tonight. Uh, what's next for you? What's the next project you're working on? 
Oh man, this was like such an endeavor to finish in the midst of the pandemic. Uh, you know, we uh, we were still cutting when everything sort of shut down. So uh, I I've been telling people this week is about having a beer, and uh, you know we'll we'll see next week. Um, we'll we'll try to get back up and and going. We still have some work to do, just uh, paperwork and stuff to finish on the film. But um, yeah, hopefully uh, hopefully something new soon. Well, let me speak for my fan base. Let me speak for all baseball fans. You did a wonderful job. Thank you. We needed something like this during this time. And just for two hours on my couch to sit there and have a beer and enjoy baseball again, it was very special. So you did a, you did an outstanding job. Oh, thanks, man. I really appreciate it. And next time you have a project, we'd love to have you back on. Cool. I'd love to. Well, we'll end with this. Paul Himbakides of ESPN is the top researcher and top producer for ESPN, and he works on the show Get Up, uh, the morning show on ESPN. He's also highlighted every single week on Buster Olney's podcast, Baseball Tonight. And luckily, we get him every single week because, you know, the bottom line with ESPN, they want to talk NFL and they want to talk a couple guys of basketball, and that's it. We give him his baseball fix right here on A's Cast Live. Here's Himbo with a little trivia and a little knowledge on the 1998 home run race. Himbo, how are we doing back there on the East Coast, getting up early with a little get up on ESPN? We're doing well. I have been up and rolling since 3.45 a.m. my time, and as is has become uh, sort of um, the norm here for me on Mondays. I always look forward to talk, talking with you guys. Um, just broadcast, and broadcasting might be a <laughs> might be a stretch, but here for my uh, parents' basement, as, as I often am uh, during this quarantine. Yeah, going from uh, your parents' basement to your in-laws' basement, and we were just talking off air. It's like, wow, you know, everywhere on the East Coast, everybody has a basement. Everybody here out on the West Coast, if unless you've got a really old, old home, you don't have a basement. Now, have we explored with the geologists why that is? Because my guess, my guess, I'm, I'm exploring buying a home now for the first time. And I'm learning all about the different things. There's this, you know, this gas called radon in New Jersey where, like, you have to be below a certain level for it to pass code. But, like, this, that's a basement issue. My guess, my guess, just based on, based on what I'm learning now, is that there's some sort of issue with the sod, the sediment, the rock layers, the formations. Who knows? I'll ask, maybe we could ask Charles Darwin. Not sure what his availability is these days about that. We don't, I, I don't know. Like, it's very peculiar to me. I've owned, I've, I have not only uh, been accustomed to basements growing up, but like basements, large basements, I've, I've used them as my, as my bedroom. Most of my buddies have basements. I'm flummoxed why you've never, uh, why most people out there don't have a basement. So are you trying to tell me you're not going to buy one of those like uh six bedroom, five bath flats in uh, <laughs> New York city? You're not like that one Derek Jeter used to own at Trump tower. You're not buying one of those. Jeter, Jeter's house was a little below market value for us. We we're looking more at something a few stories high in the Hamptons was, <laughs> but that was before the pandemic struck. So now we're sort of, uh, we're shifting our, our focus more from that kind of thing to pretty much anything else. <laughs> Uh, usually, preferably something with two numbers and then a comma, not five. But we'll see where we land, and I'll make sure to keep you and your listeners posted. I'm sure they're dying to know where where we end up. Yeah, I I love like watching that. Like, oh yeah, it's a flat for twenty four million dollars. <laughs> right. like, that, that's, that's, that's I can buy an island for that and have another <laughs> and, have, and have leftover money to also buy an island. So, uh, yeah, that's where we stand. Buying buying um buying a home in New Jersey as we're efforting now is 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 not is not cheap and the taxes are outrageous but again probably not what your listeners came here for today 
I got to tell you, I thoroughly enjoyed the 30 for 30 about the home run race. It just brought, it brought joy into my life. It brought, uh, 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 you know, that was kind of the first, that was the early part of my career. Um, and just remembering just how much fun that was on a daily basis and how big it was and how it brought our game back. And, and it was just a lot of fun to watch that. I thought they did a phenomenal job. I thought it was outstanding. I'm, I, so I was just to take a peek behind the curtain here. I was eight years old in the summer of 1998. So I can truly speak to that as being a young fan of baseball and genuinely can say that it definitely went a long way in sort of, in sort of uh, my love for the game. And I think a lot of my, you know, my, my friends and teammates growing up, you know, on those baseball teams can say the same. Like, I can't tell you how many times in the backyard hitting wiffle balls, you know, you would Sammy Sosa hop, you know, after you hit one out, like those, th th those things matter a lot. I think the summer of 98 is among the most famous times in baseball history. I think you could argue that the 1941 season, which obviously included Ted Williams, 400 um, season and Joe DiMaggio's 56 game history. There, there are other seasons that I think come close, but because of the 1998 season uh, positioned in relation to the to the strike of 94, 95, I think it had as much to do with baseball's resurgence as anything else. Uh, I, I worked on a uh, column this this weekend with Buster in which she sort of details how there are some some other factors that helped bring baseball back. But in my judgment, that had as much to do with it as anything. The, the popularity, the celebrity, the, the chase of those two players, and then obviously McGuire ending on top and hitting four homers the last two games uh, was a truly remarkable thing that I think is probably – it's unprecedented certainly in my lifetime. You know, looking back on it and then watching both Big Mac, who we recently had on the program, and also Sammy Sosa's, you know – everybody's still uncomfortable about talking about the steroids and the PEDs. I mean, even to this day, you could tell how uncomfortable Big Mac and Sammy are still about it. It's, it's, it's bizarre to me because you'd, th you'd think that by now, given where they are with the Hall of Fame, given where the public is with the knowledge that we've obtained over the years, that they would be willing to, to talk about it in objectivity, the same way that, you know, the Giants were willing to talk about their sign-stealing scandal the year that, you know, Bobby Thompson, you know, the, the, the Giants won the pennant. The Giants, like, those kinds of things are part of baseball lore. I think if you can't if you can't speak to your imperfections, then you can't speak to anything because we're filled with them and baseball is filled with them. But that's, just, that's part of the story. Like, that, the context matters so much. Like, we can – like, two things can be true at once in this case. The night, the summer of 1998 could have – was magical and brought baseball back. And it, come, it came at a price. Those – both of those things can be true at once, and all we need to do is acknowledge the context. I understand why they're uncomfortable talking about it because they're the sinners here, right? They're the transgressors. But the cat's out of the bag, guys. Like, we don't have to pretend like this didn't happen anymore. And I think what, what we've learned over the course of time is that the public is much more inclined to favor the people that face these problems up front, like the Andy Pettits of the world that said, yeah, I messed up. So what, right? I think if McGuire and Sosa had, had taken that stance initially and were willing over the course of time to – uh, to sort of wear that, I think they would have gone. I think it would have gone a long way. I think the same obviously goes for Bonds and, and the others. But McGuire is someone who's going to be a manager of a big league club someday soon. Uh, Barry Bonds was the was the Marlins sitting coach instructor a couple of years ago. These guys are back in the game. So is Jose Canseco, your guy, right? So these guys are back in the game. To pretend like I don't understand why we still need to use a blanket. Like I think we just need to rip the covers off and acknowledge it for what it was. Are we, are you hearing that, because some judge is trying to get this letter, are the Yankees going to be in trouble here with, with sign stealing? Um, I'm reading the same things publicly that you are. I, it's very hard for me to guess. Um, 
the legality of it is above my pay grade, and I have to admit that. But one thing that I was told over the course of the last several months by some of our people that know a lot more than I do and talk to everyone that does know, that this the notion that the Astros were this sort of one-stop shop for this kind of malfeasance was just not the case. So what surprised me was how light the Red Sox got off, but it wouldn't at all surprise me if these things continued to trickle out because as we've learned over the course of time, the Astros were doing the same thing that a lot of other clubs were doing, you know, but they were just doing it a lot better or at least a lot more brazenly. So it's hard for me to say. The, the comparison I would make is right now there's like this big lawsuit, this big tiff between Zion Williamson and his old agent. And a lot of the legalese just sort of bores me. If we end up learning that the, a lot of the Yankees' success over the last couple seasons or that one season in particular was illegitimate, of course it's a bombshell. But I think no matter what we do learn, I think the Astros will still always be sort of exhibit A because that's where everyone um, released their vitriol. Right? Remember when the steroid in the early 2000s, we got so upset at anyone who we sniffed steroids on, whereas you know five, six years later, Manny tests positive twice and no one cares at all. So it's, I think that's the that's problem. Unless the Yankees did it as, as egregiously and brazenly as the Astros, I think they'll probably get a slap on the wrist, kind of similar to what the Red Sox do, but we'll just have to wait, you know, wait to find out the information with certainty. Do we have some trivia? We have some trivia, and I'm excited about this one today. So, Cody, brief me on some of the you know the content for today's show. And because of long gone summer, and because I knew we'd be getting into this stuff, I have prepared five trivia questions that are all home run specific. So we're, nice. we're, we're, we're going long gone trivia today. My first question for you, my friend, is this. Which player hit the most homers in a season since... Barry Bonds' 73 home run season in 2001. So the question truly is, most home runs in a season since 2002? I would go, uh, is it John Carlo or Mike Stanton? <laughs> uh, that's correct. John Carlo Stanton hit 59 home runs in the 2017 season. That is the most in a season since Barry Bonds did it. Very well. Uh, so, so he was John Carlo at the time, or was he Mike? He was John Carlo at the time. Okay. Um, that was after the name change. That was We're talking about Kareem Abdul-Jabbar here. We're talking about Muhammad Ali. So uh, my question for you is this. For some extra credit, who uh, owns the American League, if you will, record during that time? So most home runs in a season for an American League club since 2002, just because I have the page open. It's got to be Aaron Judge, right? Judge is incorrect. Judge hit 52. That's That ranks in the top five. It's a good guess. Um, Let's see. I'll give you a hint here. I'll, I'll give you the season. This 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 is a sort of tough, actually. Uh, two thousand two. Tough as in, I wouldn't have thought of it either. Uh, a player in the American League hit fifty seven home runs in two thousand two. This would be the American League record, if you will, since two thousand two. Two thousand two. You know how long ago that was? <laughs> Awfully long. The last time you had your haircut. I, <laughs> Jim Tomey. I don't know. That's incorrect. A Rod hit fifty seven home runs. For the 2002 Rangers, that was his. I think that was that was his career high, 57. But I got the question right. You got the question right. We're just going to see how much extra you were going to sparkle, kid. Yeah. Uh, you, sh you should be flattered that I have to prepare follow-up questions now. You've done. All, you've, you've been doing your research. Uh, next question for you: Who is the all-time leader in home runs in the postseason? Ooh, that's a tricky question because. Some players have played way have been able to play way more games. Correct. This is not a this is not a World Series question. This is a postseason yeah. question. For whatever it's worth, he is way clear of anybody else. Seven more than any other player. Yeah, it's it's got to be one of the Yankees, right? Because they played in so many postseason games. This person never played for the Yankees. 
Although we all thought he would at some point. Manny Ramirez? That's correct. So Manny Ramirez. <laughs> that that last clause was helpful because I remember thinking my whole life that Manny Ramirez would play for the Yankees. Manny Ramirez had 29 career homers in the postseason. That's seven more than Bernie Williams, who hit 22, and nine more than Derek Jeter, who hit 20. Yeah, uh, like, immediately you think it's Ruth, it's Garrett, but they, they only played in the World Series. They didn't play that many games. Mickey Mantle's the all-time leader in the World Series. He hit 18 World Series home runs. That's going to stand for a while. <laughs> that would be my best guess. I mean, he I played, mean did he play in? Like, like he, he, uh, I, let, 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 let me vamp for a second here because I want to say he played in like 10 ish, like maybe more. <laughs> like that's, he played in so many World Series. Um, 18 home runs in the World Series is a remarkable accomplishment. Let me see here. I'm on his page here. We can, so it looks like Man Mickey Mantle played in the World Series 12 times. My God. So he's in the World Series every year. He, uh, yeah. It, the Yankees went seven and five in those series. I mean, he played 18 years. And, and reached the World Series in 12 of them, uh, hit 18 home runs. That's that's, that's, a, pretty, that's a pretty remarkable hey, thing. Hey, no one will ever duplicate that. You played be surprised. years yeah. and 12 of them are in the World Series? Well, the thing is, like, it would take – it would take somebody pro a prolific home run hitter to be on some sort of bender, right? Like and and to get there year after year because there's, there's there's no other way. You can't no. hit more than five homers in a single series. Um, all right, next question for you. This one this one this one should hit close to home. So the 2019 A's, as you uh, well know, broke the franchise record for home runs in a season. But which team, which year, which team had previously held that record? Most homers in a season for the A's until the 2019 team broke it. I, I figured this would be on graphics all, you know, all over the all, all over the broadcast throughout the summer. I mean, we 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 Cody, we covered that. Um, it's a team from the nineties. Yeah. Uh, I'm gonna Not go. Yeah. Not an especially good one, oddly enough. No, I'm gonna go like ninety five. Ninety six is the correct answer. Oh. You're close. So. In 1996, uh, Big Mac hit 52 homers, and there were two other guys in this club that hit 35. Geronimo Barroa hit 36 bombs. Perry Steinbach hit 35, and you had a bunch of guys. Jason Jabby hit 20 for that team. Scott Brocious hit 22. Big Mac was the only guy that really sauced, but like, every, like you had a collection of guys in that lineup that were like, you know, let's see here. Uh, Matt, Stair Matt Stairs hit 10. Ernie Young hit 19. And like I said, Jabby hit 20. So that team hit 243 home runs. That was the record until – the 2019 A's hit 257 home runs. You, 95, you should have known better. That, that that season, anyway, that season was 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 a little bit shorter because of the uh, because of the strike the strike. That's right. Strike. I think McGuire was hurt in 95 too. That was bad math. Uh, all right, next question for you. Well, um, I was off by one year. You were off by one year, but you should have thought the strike, and I think that would have probably been the difference for you. Um, see, that was that would have been the one I thought you'd get. Okay, uh, which player hit the most home runs before turning 30 years old? I'm going to have to go with the great Mel Ott. Mel Ott is incorrect. It's a good guess. This guy did a lot more recently and was someone that we all assumed would be the best chance, would have the best chance to break Hank Aaron's record. Griffey? No, Griffey's second. This guy's already been mentioned on the on – the, uh, A-Rod? Yeah, A-Rod hit 409 home runs before turning 30. That is that was the most, and Griffey had the second most. I used to collect A Rod cards because of that. I used to think this guy has as good a chance as anybody to break to break the all time record. So I sort of I sort of like stacked up, stashed up on old A Rod cards. He ended up with six ninety six. Um, 
Yeah, A-Rod hit 409 home runs before turning 30 years old. <laughs> that is uh, preposterous. All right, uh, my last home run-related uh, question for you is this. This is a tricky one, I think. I'm a National League guy. You're not. You probably already know that Babe Ruth led the American League in home runs the most times. He did it 12 times. Which player led the National League in home runs the most times? That would be Michael Jack Schmidt. That's correct. That 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 strikes me as something we may have talked about before. Ralph Kiner did it seven times, actually, over the span of 10 years, which is pretty remarkable. But Mike Schmidt, as you know, I, I'm a believer that he is an all-time great underrated player. And like, it's, like we've said in the past, Philadelphia wasn't fond of him when he was playing. Bizarre. How, how do you boo the greatest third baseman of all time? There, there's a there's a thing here where I think the temperament of a person and a player matters an awful lot more than it does other places. And the game came really easy to Schmitty. Um, so, like for example, someone like Brian Dawkins or Chase Utley or Allen Iverson, who just leaves it all out there. Who he he's what he's what they look like. He's what the blue collar Philadelphian wants their favorite athlete to look like. Mike, the game came fairly easy to Mike Schmidt. Like he he obviously at least that's how it looked. He never he 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 actually said the opposite. But he, he's not someone that the, the city ever really embraced. I think it took him a lot longer, you know, for you know when his career was over. And we finally got to look at the back of the baseball card and said, this guy's the greatest third baseman that ever lived. And it's not that close. But there was, there was also some a lot of people who believed he was a clutch. And there were some, you know, bad you know, postseason performances and all that stuff. And back in the 70s and 80s, before we had all these stats that told us we were wrong, that was a very commonly held belief around here, believe it or not. It's sort of a bizarre thing. But uh, Schmitty got a raw deal in Philadelphia. I think most fans now can see that. When I was in Philly, I took a picture with the Mike Schmidt statue and I went inside to the team store. And if I could own any jersey that's a Phillies jersey, I would be the number 20 light blue Mike Schmidt jersey. That yeah, right. thing is sick. I was it's like, at it. oh, it's beautiful. It's like 200 bucks, but it's beautiful. <laughs> so for the sake of my, yeah. Those things always cost you an arm and a leg. You have to, you have to put a down payment on a Mike Schmidt jersey from Fanatics. Um, I, I did my Mike uh, Schmidt research a few weeks ago for our book that we're working on, and I ran across this quote from Pete Rose that was just incredible. I knew what he said was, to have his body, so, speaking of Mike Schmidt, I'd trade mine and my wife's, and I'd throw in some cash. <laughs> Pete, I bet you would. <laughs> and the funny thing is, by the time Pete got to Philly, he was old. Yeah, he was old. He was ancient. Um, but he was a lot of people around here believe he was really a spark plug for obviously the, that world championship team in 1980. I just circle back and ask you guys this because in watching Long Gone Summer and, and I went back and did some reading and some listened to some podcasts where Mark McGuire spoke pretty candidly about you know the things that we you know we, we people generally ask him about. Where do you stand on on his Hall of Fame candidacy to be specific? Because I think a lot of people have sort of dishonestly lumped McGuire and Sosa and Bonds and a bunch of other guys Clemens for in like the same category like. Juicers from the early not from the early aughts, and like that's that's how like that's just how they're all categorized. But I think I think it's dishonest to do that because I think without taking each of their cases individually, you're sort of missing the nuance. So before I sort of tip my hand as to what I think, if you had you know if you had the ultimate vote in terms of McGuire's Hall of Fame candidacy, where'd you where would you be on the ledger? I think it's a travesty all these guys aren't in the baseball. Of the Baseball Hall of Fame is a museum. It's about the history of the game. You can't tell the history of the game without these guys. And the fact that the writers are punishing these guys, it's just not right. Everybody was doing it. Conseco was right. More people were doing it than weren't doing it. So it was, it's kind of like the Lance Armstrong thing. Yeah. You can call Lance Armstrong a doper, but everybody else was doping too. So, I mean, this is, this is, 
if they're all blood doping, it, 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 it's a fair fight if they're all doing the same stuff. So let's separate this. There's some, there's, okay, there's, there's, a, there's a lot to unpack there. So first of all, I disagree with the notion that it's a museum. So therefore all the transgressions should be, should be ignored because it's not really that like, yes, the baseball hall, it's a baseball hall of fame and museum. That's what it's, a, that's what, that's what it's actually called. And as you know, there's a, a large portion of the area that is a museum, which you can go and read all about the history of baseball from the very beginning to now. And they do an extraordinarily good job and it's detailed. And in that is Shoeless Joe Jackson and Pete Rose and all of these juicers, right? They are in there. The Hall of Fame room, like the plaque room, is a different thing. That is, that, that's holy ground as, as far as baseball goes. Like that's, that is it. The plaque room is it. So I, I do understand that there's a distinction between being a Hall of Famer and being represented in the museum because Sosa and McGuire and Bonds and Clemens and Shoeless Joe and Pete Rose and Eddie Sicotti and all those guys are represented sufficiently in the museum. My question to you would be, let's separate this McGuire and Sosa thing because I think that's, that's, that's where I lose people. Sammy Sosa is not a Hall of Famer. Uh, it is objectively not a Hall of Famer, whereas in my judgment, Mark McGuire is. That's 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 including the context of the steroids, because it's overwhelmingly overwhelmingly clear to me that Mark McGuire's contributions and his performance and his ability as a hitter far exceeded Sammy Sosa's, which ultimately are just some really shallow and very lofty but shallow home run numbers. Sammy Sosa's career objectively falls really short defensively. He's got a 340 on base percentage. There's not a whole lot, 125 career OPS plus or somewhere thereabouts. There's not a whole lot of value there. McGuire, however, is genuinely one of the great sluggers of all time. And I think the fact that he sort of got wrapped in with Sosa almost penalizes him, whereas his career was so much greater than Sammy Sosa's. What do you think? Uh, Bonds is a Hall of Famer. Clemens is a Hall of Famer. Rafael Palmero is a Hall of Famer. I mean, you got 3,000 hits and all those home runs. I just, to me, where I disagree with you is yeah. what they're trying to do is they're trying to tell you what the history of baseball is. It's like going to a World War One or World War II museum and taking out the bad stuff and just having the good stuff. Yeah. That's what, because if you're going to tell me the guy that has the most Cy Youngs, the guy that has the most hits, and the guy that has the most MVPs are not Hall of Famers, I'm going to tell you you're. And remember how this all how this all worked out. They took Pete Rose off the ballot. It was the Hall of Fame that did that. The Hall of Fame said, "Hey, if if you're not eligible to be in baseball, you can't be on the ballot." It was not the baseball never told the Hall of Fame. Correct. To take him off the ballot. They did that Correct. independently. Independently. Rob Manfred has publicly said, I am agnostic about P. Rose. It is a Hall of Fame decision. My question for you though is if 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 the whole if, if we're gonna have a system in place where we're you know whereby the writers are gonna vote and we're gonna have a system in place for which we have other means for people to get in through the various committees, at what point, at what point are we gonna really choose to value what they're doing? Because I do totally totally understand the notion that having a, a a hall of fame in which mark mcguire and barry bonds and roger clemens are not hall of famers seems really silly it is is misrepresenting baseball history in that sense they belong in the plaque room but there's also so much value and uh inherent worth in being a hall of famer like that being in that fraternity is something so important and if a vast majority of those players don't want themselves associated with these people who didn't do it the right way that we know didn't do it the right way. There's also value in weighing that opinion. It's not as simple as if you were great enough, 
regardless of context you're in because as we know like there's just so much nuance and so much context context that goes into this stuff and it's hard for me to reconcile that having been to the hall of fame so many times and having been in that black room like i it's hyperbole to say that it's holy ground, but I do think there needs to be a distinction between being a Hall of Famer and having one's, uh, you know, statistics and accomplishments represented within those walls. Yeah, I've been there three times. And let me tell you this, for all those guys that don't want to be associated with them, yeah. I say, okay, then let's go over to that lodge on the lake. I want to put you under oath and we're going to do a lie detector test. And I'm going to ask you, did you ever do greenies? Did you ever do amphetamines? And they're all going to, oh, my God, I have to answer this because they all did that. I know that for a fact. Sure. And that's, and that's banned today. So that's a PED. I can tell you how many of those guys are sitting up on that stage at the end of July every year that actually did PEDs themselves. So these guys got to, you know, they don't want to come. No one wants to come clean. But that's where that's where I get angry, where I go, wait a minute, you know, you hypocrisy like you wouldn't believe. And that is an argument that I do agree with. Nothing is worse than on the MLB Network panels the day of the Hall of Fame election when I'm hearing these guys from all over the place tell me that I'm putting Jeff Kent in the Hall of Fame because he did it the right way. And I'm putting X, Y, or Z player in. You don't know that. All you know is that Jose Canseco didn't include him in a book or they weren't in the Mitchell report. Like, <laughs> we're at the point now where we're just penalizing players for being unlucky enough to have their information broadcasted. Whereas, like you said, so many other players that are already in there assuredly cheated. You bring joy to our world every single Monday, Himbo. You are the best. Be safe in your basement, and we yes, will talk yes. to you next week. All right. <laughs> I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do some research on California real estate between now and then, <laughs> and I will come back with a full detailed trivia uh, contest <laughs> in that regard. <laughs> well, we want to thank Carney Lansford, Walt Jockety, AJ Snock, and Himbo for coming on with us. We always appreciate the time. Now back to A's Cast, powered by TuneIn. This has been a presentation of the Oakland Athletics.